0: Thanks, Gary. Yeah, it is so good to be here with you all, and and it does feel like home when we get to visit. My wife Katie and I, our little girl Lonnie, turns one this week. We are so pleased to get to come spend time with you as a church family. Um, I told Gary, it feels like sleeping over at an uncle's house. It's just so comfortable. (laughs) The normal uncle. There we go. So I am really excited to get to join you in this rebuild series that you're in. You've been working your way through the book of Ezra. Soon you'll be in Nehemiah. And you're looking at Israel returning from their Babylonian exile to the promised land. And real quick, let's do a big picture overview recap for those of us who maybe haven't been here for every part of the series. So firstly, way, 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 way back in Genesis, God chooses Israel to be his special possession, to be his holy nation. They'd been made God's people, and they're given a promised land, and they're also given God's word to follow. But the Israelites were unfaithful. And so then they're separated from their promises. They're exiled into the land of Babylon. And they're exiled for unfaithfulness. And so, in the sovereign plan of God, He's now initiated their return from exile. They're to begin rebuilding what was destroyed. And this morning, we're going to be in Ezra chapters 7 and 8, and we will be looking at what faithful people look like. And as a guy who loves to build, I see some builders here also, I was thinking up 10,000 construction analogies to go with the sermon. Things about building new things or renovating old things. And honestly, as I thought about those, they all mostly fell flat until I came across a story of another kind of rebuilding. This is a true story. Jeff Scruggs was a young man fresh out of college and into his first job in Memphis, Tennessee. He was young, he was happy, objectively quite good looking, and one morning he found himself in a diner staring at the most beautiful waitress he had ever seen. The name tag said Cheryl and Jeff said, do you want to go out with me? And 13 months later, they were married. They'd fallen wildly in love with each other, and it was perfect. They picked up from Tennessee and moved to L.A. They started careers. They bought an Ocean View home. They had twin baby girls. Jeff thought he was building his dream life, and Cheryl thought the same. And slowly but surely, the years piled up, and that young, wild love slowly numbed into normal, and the Scruggs as they just sort of carried on. And then one day, more than eight years into their marriage, Cheryl got called away to a conference out of town. And what began that weekend as an innocent enough conversation with a coworker soon became a full-blown adulterous affair. And Cheryl couldn't do it anymore. She wanted out of her marriage. So she left Jeff and the girls after a tear-filled explanation to Jeff that she didn't think she had ever even loved him. Jeff got a knock on the door a few days later while he was tucking his girls into bed and it was the sheriff's department delivering the divorce papers. It really was over. Three months after leaving her husband, Cheryl heard the gospel of Jesus Christ for the first time. She wept Christ became her Savior and her Lord that day, and she began to sense soon after that that the Holy Spirit was stirring in her heart, reviving her heart, encouraging her to rebuild her marriage. So she went to Jeff to explain. Jeff sat there and heard her out, and when she'd finished, he stood up with tears in his eyes. Then he laughed in her face. He told her he would never trust her again. And that they would never, ever reconcile their marriage. Cheryl's obviously devastated, but sensed God encouraging, bringing courage to her heart. She felt called to rebuild this thing that she had broken. And Cheryl didn't know it, but shortly after their meeting, Jeff began attending a Bible study with some young men. And God started doing some rebuilding on Jeff's heart. Jeff soon finally and fully surrendered himself to Jesus also he did not however trust Cheryl and she continued to invite him over to her house for dinner with their girls and he continued to reject her for years and then one evening he thought you know what I'll just go over he caved he went over for dinner and then he went again then he went more frequently then he started to help cook And then seven years after Cheryl had slammed the door in his face, Jeff asked his wife out on a date. They renewed their marriage vows three weeks later. Their family and their marriage had been miraculously rebuilt. And we are going to be looking at all of those themes this morning in Ezra. Faithfulness, unfaithfulness, things that were destroyed, things that are to be rebuilt. And Gary told us the very first week, what the goal of this series is. And he's reminded us since. It's twofold. To revive our hearts with passion for God and to renew our minds with the plan of God. So may God speak to us today through his word. Let's pray as we begin. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that you are here present with us by your Holy Spirit. We are in the presence of God. Lord, we're so thankful that you've given us your word, that we can find you in here, that we can learn what it means to be a faithful follower of you. Jesus, we trust that you'll speak to us by your spirit and through your word this morning. We love you, Lord. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. So if you would turn with me to Ezra chapter 7, that would be great. It will also be on the screen. But just before we start, let's recall the last six chapters. Chapter 1 and 2, the Israelites get to return from Babylon to the promised land to rebuild the temple. That takes the next few chapters, right? They build the temple, they build the altar. And in chapter 6, which we just finished, they've now completed the temple. And this chapter begins some 80 years after that. You'll see right in the first verse, now after this. That's roughly 80 years. So let's start in verse 1. Now after this, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia... Ezra, the son of, and then there's 15 sons of's. And all of it leads to Ezra being the son of Aaron, the chief priest. Think Moses' brother. The writer skips some generations in there, but he's making the point that Aaron, or that Ezra is a direct descendant of Aaron, which gives Ezra blood rights to the priesthood. So remember that. We're going to come back to that. But let's read on. So this Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And the king granted him all that he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. Then it continues in verse 9. For on the first day of the first month, he began to go up from Babylonia. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem, for the good hand of his God was on him. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach God's statutes and rules in Israel. And so finally, we get to Ezra. He hasn't appeared yet in his own book. (laughs) So who is he? We see right away, Ezra is a direct descendant of Aaron. That's important, right? He has rights to the priesthood. Then we're told his occupation, that Ezra is a scribe. Now that could mean he's sort of like a secretary to the king of Persia, but much more likely it means that he's a scholar who studied and taught the scriptures. That same scribe, that occupation exists also in the New Testament with the Jews. It's sometimes translated teacher of the law or rabbi. That might be a familiar word. So Ezra has priestly lineage, he's got biblical training, He is called and commissioned by the very hand of God, but also by the king of Persia, Artaxerxes. And so Ezra either kind of asks the king if he's allowed to return to his homeland with permission, or the king appoints him to do just that. But either way, he goes from Babylon to Jerusalem. And Ezra is a faithful man. We read right there that he had set his heart on the things of God. He's executing correctly what it means to be a priest of Israel, even in the exile. And then this chapter is going to continue with a letter from the king, from Artaxerxes, that he gives to Ezra so that Ezra can prove his authority to whoever might question it. And the king lays out exactly what Ezra has permission to do in verses 11 through 26. And basically he says that any Israelites that want to go along with Ezra and return home are allowed to. They may go. The king also sends with Ezra an offering to God that Ezra is to dedicate in the temple. And then the king closes the letter with this. We'll pick it up in verse 25. And you, Ezra, according to the wisdom of your God that is in your hand, appoint magistrates and judges who may judge all the people in the province beyond the river, all such as know the laws of your God. And those who do not know them, you shall teach them. Whoever will not obey the law of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be strictly executed on him, whether for death or for banishment or for confiscation of his goods or for imprisonment. So that concludes the whole of Ezra's task. He's to return to Jerusalem from Babylon. That's about a 1,500 kilometer journey by foot. Less than gentle terrain, that sounds challenging enough. And he's to take along whoever wants to go with him. Then he's to give offerings to God on behalf of the king of Persia, Artaxerxes. And finally, he's to appoint governors and judges, teach them God's law, which is then to become the law of the land in the province beyond the river. Does that already give you like arm tingles? Like, this king is a pagan. What business does he have commissioning a temple sacrifice project using his own funds and then implementing God's law as the law of the land in one part of his kingdom? Why is this enemy of God doing the right thing and working for God's people instead of against God's people? How does this happen? It tells us right in the text, in verse 27, now we have Ezra speaking. Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem and who extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors and before all of the king's mighty officers. And so just like with Cyrus, just like with Darius, the kings before him, Artaxerxes has something put into his heart by God. And so God is ultimately commissioning this project and is calling Ezra to come and complete it. And so what does Ezra do? It says, I took courage, for the hand of the Lord my God was on me, and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. So he grabs hold, he takes hold of the courage that comes from knowing God's promises and plan, and then he does what is asked of him. Now we're going to remember this because we're going to come back to this reality, the reality of knowing God's call on us and by extension his love for us. And so then we move to chapter 8, which is essentially the, in the account of Ezra kind of gathering up those who want to go along and then making that journey. Now we won't examine exactly how this morning, but Ezra has some difficulty even just collecting people who want to go, but eventually he gets a bunch of families of Israel together who want to return home. And once he has them gathered, they set out. And so that's where we're going to pick it up. That's in verse 21 of chapter 8. Again, this is Ezra speaking. Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava, that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all our goods. For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way, since we told the king, the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and implored our God for this, and he listened to our entreaty. So they fast, they pray, they kind of set up a makeshift camp before they leave, then they break camp and they go. They make the four-month trek back home. In verse 31, Then we departed from the river Ahava on the twelfth day of the first month to go up to Jerusalem. The hand of our God was on us, and he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from ambushes by the way. We came to Jerusalem, and there we remained three days. On the fourth day, within the house of our God, the silver and the gold and the vessels were weighed into the hands of Merimoth the priest. The whole of it was counted and weighed, and the weight of everything was recorded. At that time, those who had come from captivity, the returned exiles, that's from chapters 1 and 2, way back, offered burnt offerings to the God of Israel 12 bulls for all Israel, 96 rams, 77 lambs, and as a sin offering, 12 male goats. All this was a burnt offering to the Lord. They also delivered the king's commissions to the king's satraps and to the governors of the province beyond the river. And they aided the people and the house of God. And so Ezra and the people complete most of the mission. They make the journey home. They do the offerings that the king commanded them to offer to God. They deliver the king's commission. And now all that is left is for Ezra to train and teach judges and to institute God's law in the land. And so that's the narrative. That's how the story goes. And I want us to be reminded this morning that Ezra is a real guy in history who got sent from Babylon by a king who was a real king in history home to Jerusalem. Sometimes we get the idea that the biblical characters are somehow yanked out of their historical reality. Like maybe they can kind of see more of the picture than we can see. They kind of know the end before the beginning. Or, I'm sometimes guilty of this, I smush all the Bible characters together and assume they all know each other's stuff, and so nothing's a surprise, nothing takes faith, it's just implied. Like, these characters might have more of the picture than we have. But let's remember this morning that Ezra would have been born after that first contingent of Israelites went home. He's born after that. And so that would have just been stories he heard as a kid growing up. And clearly he's like raised up in his lineage. He's trained as a teacher of the law, which meant first he would have been a student of the law. He's just a kid raised in captivity. He's a real human man. He lived in the Middle East 2,500 years ago-ish. And then he's, he's trained up as a priest. Now that role has been significantly diminished because they are in the exile. It used to have honor, now it has much less. He doesn't have a temple to serve in. He doesn't have an altar on which to make sacrifices. He doesn't have the physical presence of the glory of God resting in the Holy of Holies. You talked about that last week. And he would have grown up kind of hearing those stories of the group of Israelites that had returned, that had been released from exile. But, he probably didn't know how things were going. How it was actually unfolding. It would have been all kind of rumors and ancient history. Like, Ezra is as far removed from the original return as you and I are from World War II. This is a long time ago. It's ancient history at this point. And he also would have known, like, the biblical story, right? He's trained in God's Word. So he knows the whole picture. We got Adam to Abraham. Abraham to Jacob who becomes Israel to Moses to Joshua to David to unfaithfulness to Babylon, right? Like he has the, the sort of the, the flow of the narrative because we read that he's skilled in the law. So he knows how to use the text. He's seen the manner in which God has moved in the past and the promises that God has made for the future. And Ezra basically is committing to joining in with what God is already doing. He has his eyes on God's plan, and his heart is faithful to him. And now's maybe a good time to make a little distinction, because Ezra is faithful not because of his circumstances, but in spite of his circumstances. Like, he doesn't have his homeland to minister in. He doesn't have that. He just has his exiled people with him. He doesn't have the presence of God dwelling with the people like his forefathers would have had. He doesn't have that. But he has the hand of God on him. And he is committing himself to the Lord in spite of what is going on around him. And it is Ezra's job. like It's his occupation to study the scriptures and to teach them. And beyond that, we read that he's actually set his heart on the law of the Lord. It's so much more than his job. It's his passion. It's, he's set his heart on it. And so he's studied And as he studied, he would have been reminded over and over and over again that the way that things are, are not the way that things should be. But he wasn't just committed to studying these scriptures. He was committed to doing them and to teaching them to all of Israel. And so, a reminder, this is a historical account of things that actually happened. They took place for real on this very real earth. Not that far from here if you own a plane. But this is not just history. This is history and theology. And so it is true in like a lowercase sense, but it is also true, uppercase caps lock, true. This is God's perfect word, which means inside of it contains all people for all time kind of truths. And so although although this may seem simply like a story of some random priest of Israel from ages ago, there are things in here that want to speak to us today. So hear what is in here. The word of God is alive and active. It wants to cut your heart. So let's dig a little this morning. What does God want us to hear from him through his servant Ezra? So we're going to look at a few of the major themes from these chapters. And one of them is obviously exile and return. Now, that's one of the themes of Scripture as a whole, but it's displayed really clearly in the narrative here. And Ezra gets linked to Aaron, the chief priest, not just to prove that he has rights to the priesthood, but also to remind the reader they would notice right away the similarities. So they're parallel characters. Aaron grows up in slavery in Egypt. Ezra does the same. Babylon. Aaron acts as the priest when the Israelites return from Egypt to the land promised their forefathers in the Exodus. Ezra has the same job. Aaron acts as the mouthpiece for Moses, which ultimately God, and after the encounter at Mount Sinai, he instructs the people in God's law and worship. That's Ezra's job. The reader notices immediately the similarities. This story has been done before. God has banished his own people, and now he is reconciling them back to their true home. And in many ways, our current state as Christians could be compared to these chapters. We are not at home, the land that we belong in is not the land we are in. And so like Ezra, we are preparing to go home. We are gathering the faithful with us to journey back to this place that is being prepared for us. Does that resonate with you this morning? Do you feel like a foreigner on this earth? Do you look around at the customs and practices of this land and just long for God's law to be revered? Don't you just want to kind of faithfully execute these instructions that God has given you as you journey home to be with him? It's not a bad reminder, friends. We're not citizens here. We are on like a temporary work visa. And when that thing expires, we are going to be home. So don't get too comfortable in this land. If you make this your home, you're going to be disappointed. The home prepared for us is better. We have loved ones that are missed here this morning. But they're at home. They've returned from exile. They're with the Lord. Or maybe this morning, this theme of exile and return sort of describes our old self. We're in a state of exile. We've been separated from God and we're in need of an exodus, a return to him. And this is one of the ways that the New Testament authors talk about our souls That at the moment of salvation, there begins a journey of sanctification, being made into the likeness of Jesus. And often the terms are like either journey terms or construction terms. They're great descriptors for being made into the image of Jesus Christ. And if you have professed faith in Jesus Christ, you are being built up, conformed into his likeness. That is happening in you. And so, maybe the Holy Spirit is convicting your heart this morning, reviving your heart, prodding at your heart to stop putting off what you know God has asked you to do. Like the Holy Spirit did with Cheryl Scruggs. Or maybe this season, maybe the last two years, has meant you've kind of let some of your spiritual life deteriorate. Things that you know you're supposed to do, but you just don't feel like it. Oh, it's way too complicated. What has been torn down in your walk with the Lord that needs to be rebuilt? Is there a journey you need to begin? Have you gotten way too comfortable in Babylon to answer the call of God and then take the difficult path towards Him? I want to encourage you this morning, friends press on, strain for this prize. This series is about rebuilding. Building takes effort, this is sweat stuff. We want to learn from these scriptures, truths that will help us build up our faith. And so how did Ezra rebuild in these chapters? How did he do it? It's on some faithful people. That's how he did it. And it's kind of obvious, right? Like we ask kind of like, how was Ezra faithful to the call of God in his life? He was faithful. It's like using the word in the definition. It's kind of redundant. So let's get a little more descriptive. What constituted faithfulness in Ezra's life? What was his faithfulness made up of? And I think we see three things really clearly here in God's word. And the first is that Ezra studied God's word. God's word was the center of his life. For Ezra, this was the law of Moses. He studied it. He committed to doing it. He taught it. He honored it. He didn't look back on the stories of the past and think, oh, that's just for those people back then. No, he treated this as active and important for his time. One commentator writes, the scripture of the past is guidance for the present and the future. And so God's word was the center of his life. He was renewing his mind with the plan of God. Is that familiar language? It's the first way that Ezra stayed faithful. And then there's two other ways we see him remaining faithful. And they're right at the end of chapter 7. Ezra says, I took courage, for the hand of the Lord my God was on me, and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. So there's two things he did in there. Did you catch them? He took courage, and he gathered the leading men of Israel. So these are the other ways that Ezra was able to remain faithful. The second thing is that he took courage, he mustered up the strength to obey. He held on to his calling and his convictions. And it sounds like in the verse, like courage was lacking. Like he had to go out and look for it, track it down and take hold of it. But he took courage. And then finally, he gathered other faithful people. He joined with Other believers. He united himself with them. He committed to lead them, to teach them, to live with them, to trust them with responsibilities. This wasn't a solo mission. This involved a whole community, hundreds of people, family units. And so Ezra demonstrated faithfulness through these three things he kept God's word central, he took the courage to obey those words, and then he gathered with other believers. Friends, we wear the same call. Christians are supposed to be faithful people. And so the same descriptors used for Ezra should be able to be used for us. It says that Ezra set his heart to study the law of the Lord, to do it, and to teach it. That should be able to be said of any of us. Not that all of us are going to be preachers and teachers of the word of God, but all of us should be studying his word, doing his word, And showing it to others. I mean, every single word in here is God breathed. It is so good. Get in it. And then take the courage to obey it. Most of that obedience is the same for everyone. Like we're all called to similar things, we're called to live lives that are set apart, we're called to flee from sin. We're called to use our gifting. But then some of that obedience is going to be specific for just you. God has built you in such a way and asked you to bear Him, to be an image bearer of Him in such a way that no one else can be. And so take courage, friend. God is in the business of using broken people to accomplish His purposes on earth. We need us. And then finally, we're to gather with God's people. Being faithful involves a community of believers. We're not to go this alone. God's given the church various designations. One is that he calls us a family. He calls us one body. He calls us one in Christ Jesus. We need each other. You must be in the physical presence of other Christians to live a faithful life for God. You must be. And so some of you are sitting here like, really Chris, so the takeaway for today, read your Bible, pray every day, and go to church. That's it? Yeah, that's it. That is the method of faithfulness laid out for us in God's Word. This is how we do it. It is simple. Now, we have the tendency as fallen people to make things complicated. We find it hard to do, And so although it's simple, we start to complicate it just because we find it hard to do, when really it's not complicated, it's simple. (laughs) Young people, I want you to listen to me. If you've committed your life to Jesus Christ and you are desperate to serve him with your life, I want you to go and find a senior in this church who has done just that, who has lived a faithful life for Jesus Christ and ask them, how did you do it? I am certain 99% of what they are going to tell you is these three things. It's not flashy. It's not adrenaline-inducing most of the time. It doesn't look great on your Insta. Paul tells us to live a quiet life. That's the life we're to pursue. And young people, I don't want you to be fooled into thinking that living a quiet life means it is not worth it. It is so worth it. When you open God's Word... You get to meet with God. When you call out to him, encouraged to obey, you pray to him, you are speaking to God. And when you gather with other believers, you are seeing God at work. This is his body on earth. Now some of you might be thinking, sounds like a lot of effort. Sounds like work. Well, there's another insight in these words for us this morning. We read that Ezra took courage. That he purposed in his heart to obey. Even though maybe he was frightened or anxious or unsure, whatever. He found that courage. But we also read why he took courage. It says, I took courage for the hand of the Lord my God was on me. This is actually the how of Ezra's faithfulness. The hand of God was on was on him. It gets repeated. We read it over and over again in these chapters. The hand of God was on me. And so Ezra saw God working. That's how courage was found and taken. He saw God at work and other people saw it too. Artaxerxes says right in his letter, the hand of God is on Ezra. Like even unbelievers could see it. And so it is clear, this is not a human initiative. This isn't Ezra's idea. And it's not his subsequent effort that's going to make the outcome possible to execute. This is God's plan. And it's the very hand of God that is ensuring that it gets done. How much more is this true for you and I? We may don't, maybe we don't feel like God's hand is on us. I don't feel like God's hand is on me most of the time. But friends, we know that the Spirit. That is the same spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. That spirit dwells in you. You have the spirit of God in you. This is a more intimate knowledge of God than Ezra had. We have a nearness with him that Ezra could have only dreamed of. If Ezra could take courage at the knowledge of God at hand, you and I can take courage at the knowledge of God indwelling. So although, yes, we have to be in God's Word. Yes, we have to cry out to God for the courage to obey. And yes, we have to gather with fellow believers. We also have, preeminently, much bigger, the spirit of the living God living in us. And what does the spirit do? The spirit grows up fruit. What are the fruits of the spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Did I miss one? Yeah, faithfulness. Faithfulness. Faithful people are being built up by the Holy Spirit. Faithfulness is the action of God in your heart. Jeff and Cheryl Scruggs know this intimately now. Friends, we have the opportunity to walk with the Spirit. To let Him lead us. To take a journey with Him. To live in Him. And so trust in God to build up the fruits of His Spirit in you. Jesus was a faithful man. And so, as you are sanctified by the Holy Spirit, as you are made more into the image of Jesus Christ, you will be built up in his faithfulness. And that reminds us of a final theme in Ezra. We would be mistaken if we think that the book of Ezra is about Ezra, it's about Jesus. Jesus says in the Gospels that all of these words bear witness to him. He's in here. And so just like the writer of Ezra wanted to link Ezra and Aaron as similar men, we can also see Ezra as linked to Christ, as an archetype for Jesus Christ. Jesus is called Rabbi in the Gospels. Jesus was skilled in. In the law, Jesus was a teacher of the word. Jesus gathered faithful men. Jesus said he would rebuild the temple. Jesus journeyed to Jerusalem. Jesus completed the sacrifice that was required. Jesus saw God's leading and obeyed it, even to the point of death on a cross. And so, reading Ezra doesn't make us think of Ezra, it makes us think about Jesus. Hearing stories about Jeff and Cheryl Scruggs doesn't make us think about their family. It makes us think about Jesus. Ezra in his praise to God says, blessed be the Lord who extended to me his steadfast love. That can be translated faithful love. Ezra had capacity for faithfulness because the Lord, that's in caps locks, that's the personal name for God, extended love to him first. Faithful love. Friends, We got the same story. We have the same story. The faithful love of God was displayed perfectly and physically in Jesus Christ, His Son. He did this first. And so the whole of creation is pointing towards the Creator. The whole of the written Word is pointing towards the Word made flesh. The whole work of the Spirit is pointing towards the completed work of the Son. This is all about Jesus. And so how do we stay faithful? Well, we join the rest of creation in making everything about Him. Take courage, friends. Revive your hearts with passion for Jesus And remember his plan and his purposes. Renew your mind with the truth of Jesus Christ. In one chapter in Revelation, Jesus gets called two names. He gets called faithful and true. That's our Jesus. And so let us journey to the land of our Lord together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you praise this morning for your word for your word made flesh, for Jesus Christ. He's the the firstborn, as we read in Colossians earlier. God, he goes before us. And Lord, it is is what we do to put our faith into him. We're not trusting in our own abilities, God. We're not trusting in our own brilliant schemes or the things we can come up in. Lord, we want to be submissive to your authority in our lives. And we submit ourselves to you again this morning. We love you.